today we conclude our look at the book of Acts. And it's a long book. We've actually preached over the past several years all of Luke's writings. Luke, by by sheer content, I think has the majority of the... He's, he's Of all the writers, he's written the most of the New Testament. Even though Paul has more books, Luke has more volume. Uh, it's, it's a significant amount that he writes, right? His gospel of 24 chapters and and uh, and Acts of 28, and they're long chapters. You know, Luke, 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 uh, Luke when he got going, he could really keep going. Um, but it is all dense and substantial. Um, and Luke has taken us on quite a journey here, or as he wrote to Theophilus, and we've been able to listen in. Uh, Luke has taken us on quite a journey from these trembling uh, disciples in the beginning, asking questions of Jesus, still not catching on to the fact that they are to be missionally minded, uh, to, to get out and get to work. They're still wondering, you remember when Jesus is about to ascend, is, is now the time that you're going to you know, bring the promises and establish the kingdom? And, and you'll remember in Acts 1, Jesus saying, it's not for you to know the times and the hours, but, this, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. That's what you need to know. Okay, what you need to know is not when this is going to happen, when that's going to happen. What you need to know is your calling. And your calling is to be my witness here and there and everywhere throughout to the outermost parts of the world. That's how Acts began. And, and they went back and they gathered in the upper room, still unsure of what all that meant. But then in Acts chapter 2, when the wind began to blow, as they were praying and praising the Lord, the Spirit came upon them. And made it manifest by the tongues of fire that were waving above them that the spirit had descended upon each one of them as the tabernacle of God and that he was now dwelling with them the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ the king of kings the seed of David as we thought about in 2 Timothy 2 today was now dwelling with them and they were on a mission go now into all nations in Matthew's gospel it was teaching them everything that I've commanded you making disciples, baptizing them, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. And from that moment on, we see new apostles, still fallen apostles, still sinful apostles, but new men. They burst forth from that room and they begin preaching and we jumped right into Acts chapter 2 as, as Peter just began preaching the word with renewed, new, not renewed, new boldness. Peter the coward, Peter the denier, Peter, the one up in the upper room, now becomes Peter out on the streets in Jerusalem in the face of the hostility of those that crucified Jesus just 40 days earlier. And Peter's proclaiming the word and calling people to repent. And in the next couple chapters, you'll remember Peter and John going to the temple to continue preaching and healing the man at the beautiful gate. And he's dancing around and the Jewish leaders feeling the pressure of this arrest Peter and John and tell them they better stop. And Peter says, we're not stopping. <laughs> you know, we're not stopping. We're preaching. And the, the church back at home praying for, the, for their deliverance. But Peter and John continue to preach and the Lord delivers them out of prison. And, and this movement is now beginning. But it's still localized in Jerusalem until with the execution of Stephen and the persecution that now becomes, uh, begins to come on the church, the Lord pushes them out and now they begin to go 
witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, but now out into Samaria as Philip finds the Ethiopian eunuch and kind of runs up alongside his, his chariot, you'll remember. And what are you reading? You know, and, uh, and they break into, a, uh, they break into a, a discussion and the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized having heard the gospel. And, and now the gospel is beginning to flood over the gates of Jerusalem and Judea and make its way out to the nations. Of course, in the next chapter, Saul himself, the great persecutor, is converted. And now he becomes the main character of our story. It'll take a couple chapters to, to kick in. But by chapter 13, he now becomes the focus of Luke's story. But in the meantime, the gospel is still going. And Peter got his great vision in Acts, after, after Saul's conversion. In Acts chapter 10, Peter gets the grand vision that the times have changed. And this was very hard for the apostles to understand. They're ready to go. They're filled with boldness and energy, and they're going to preach what Christ has told them to preach, but they're still grappling with this. What, what, where are we? What world are we in? How do we make sense of the Old Testament and what has now occurred in the resurrection? But in things like Peter's grand vision of the food coming down out of heaven, it begins to get clearer. Peter still having one foot back in the Old Covenant and not wanting to eat this meat the Lord breaks him of that. That time is over now, Peter. Those old shadows, those old things are gone. Rise, kill, and eat. That which I declare clean, you ought not declare unclean. And of course, he wasn't just talking about meat. He was talking about Cornelius, this Roman centurion who feared God, but who was not a Jew. He's a Gentile. But who, while Peter's getting this vision, has already sent servants up to find Peter because the angel of the Lord had told him, go look for Peter and bring him down. But Peter's not going to want to go into the house of a Roman centurion because he's a Jew. But, but the Lord has now showed him what the Lord declares clean. I ought not declare unclean. And so he comes down and he preaches the gospel to this Roman centurion and he believes and the spirit falls upon him and manifests the same signs as the apostles had. And Peter says, hey, if they have the same spirit, how can we not call them brothers? How can we not baptize them? How can we not welcome them into the family? And so Peter and the apostles are learning. And then in chapter 13, Paul now begins his missionary journeys. And the gospel is spreading out from Jew now to the Gentiles. And Paul begins. And we spend a lot of time tracking Paul and even the maps in our bulletins of looking at Paul's journeys as he made his way around uh, um, uh, uh, the Middle East, but then also up into Turkey, and then also over into Macedonia and Greece. And Paul going and planting churches and all the, the craziness of those journeys, and imprisonments, and trials, and riots, and arguments, and dealing with the Jews, and then being kicked out, and heading out to the Gentiles, and, and, and paying dearly for this along the way. Being stoned and left for dead, being imprisoned, being beaten. Uh, nonetheless, Paul was faithful and went forth. Then we had in Acts chapter 15, the first major controversy that the church had to reckon with. Peter had had his vision individually, but now in Acts chapter 15, they had to wrestle with as a, as a church. The gospel's going out to Gentiles. We get that. But what do we do with them? <laughs> what do we do with these Gentiles? Do we make them Jews? Do we take these new covenant believers and bring them into the old covenant and, and help them to be faithful old covenant people? How do we handle this? And you'll remember that the church no longer 
simply depending upon God for answers by casting lots, as they did in chapter 1, but now filled with the Spirit, praying and then trusting that the Spirit will direct and guide, made decisions. And they made the decision to say, no, we will not try to make them Jews. We're not going to drag them back into the Old Covenant. These are full and faithful believers, and therefore they need not be circumcised. They don't need the Old Covenant mark of circumcision. They have the Lord Jesus Christ, and by faith, they are recognized as full members within the covenant. That was an amazing, amazing decision for the church to make, recognizing the fact that they were beginning to catch on to the times. And from that time now, we, we, we remember, it's more familiar to us now, the, the story of Paul then going back out on his second journey, splitting with Barnabas. We remember that incident. But now going forth up into Macedonia and planting churches, even to the Philippians, as we uh, read Philippians chapter 1 today. And then, of course, moving back down to Jerusalem after the third journey, saying goodbye to the uh, Ephesian elders in Miletus, making his way down to Jerusalem, and there being arrested, and that has taken us all the way to where we are now. And, and what we've been tracking over the past couple weeks has been this promise that the Lord made to Paul, that he's going to get to Rome. And, and now we, we sigh. We can say, ah, he made it. He made it. Paul's desire has been to get to Rome and really to establish a new headquarters from which he could go out and beyond. But he, the Lord does not have that for him. That will not be Paul's task. Paul's task is to get to Rome. And so our text today brings him to Rome in which he engages with believers there. Mark read it last week, but I'll read it again uh, today. This is Acts chapter 28, the last verses of the book, uh, 28 verses, verses 17 through 31. Hear the word of God. And after three months, we sailed in Alexandrian ship, whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing in Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled round and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day, we came to Petoli, where we found, uh, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apollai Forum and the three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who had guarded him. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had done anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So when they had pointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. 
So when they did not, did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute amongst themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Well, it's that last line that I used for the title of the sermon this morning, no one forbidding him in the, in the uh, I think it's in the ESV, it might be the New American Standard. I like that it says unhindered. And so I thought, you know what? After last week's sermon on the undistracted gospel, we'll use that last line for today's sermon as we conclude it and really look back on Acts and that of the unhindered gospel. The fact that Paul is preaching here as a prisoner and yet his gospel, his message, his ministry is unhindered. No one forbidding him. Paul here is camped out in his house. He's renting a house in Rome. And, uh, you know, he's got to pay for that while he waits for his trial. He's there with a Roman guard, most likely literally chained to a Roman guard. You know, you know some say that would be like the modern day ankle bracelet. Uh, you know, he's, he's actually, his ankle bracelet is this guy, Julius. Uh, who's who's tagging along with him. And wow, Julius must have really, really gotten an earful. I mean, you wonder whether or not this guy Julius gave his life to the Lord. I mean, how many sermons did this guy hear as Paul is? I mean, wow, what a seminary education, Julius, or whoever was assigned to Paul, whether there was a rotating shift. Uh, you just wonder, these guys who were assigned to Paul and had to be chained to him. I mean, he is just, not only I'm sure is he spending time with this guy, just challenging him with regards to the gospel, but but sitting through all these lectures that Paul is giving. Paul basically for two years just opens his house and makes it like a little study center. And people are coming and invited to come in and talk with him. And he is going on and sharing the gospel with them. We know that Paul, or at least we believe by tradition, that Paul will be executed here. Of course, Luke does not give us that part of the story whether he chooses not to or whether Luke did not know or didn't stick around or wasn't able to, um, for whatever reason, uh, um, we're not told that, but, but Luke will not get out of Rome. Uh, he will go away, he'll be arrested again, uh, and then uh, that, in that arrest he will be, <clears throat> he'll be executed. Um, but as we've seen, the gospel has overcome every hurdle that has been thrown at it through the book of Acts. So today we think about the unhindered gospel. So I want us, just in this text, to think about it being unhindered uh, from four things, right? The gospel is unhindered by false accusation. It is not forbidden or kept from going out by these false accusations. Paul has lived under the burden of false accusation. There's nothing, you know, if you've ever been falsely accused of something, it's a real burden. Um, you really feel it. I remember when Chapel Field, we were going through the lawsuit, you know, we were accused of pretty significant prejudice. 
uh, against a particular student. And you know, when that stuff gets out, when you're when it's being told that you're being sued because you racially discriminated, um, that's you know, and 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 which, by the way, uh, you know, we did not do. Uh, when you're falsely accused that way, it's really a, a tremendous burden. Uh, you feel the need to like talk to everybody in the county. Like I need to sit down with everybody and say, now I know you heard that, but th this is who we are, this is what we do, and this is not true. Um, and to have to bear with that when I don't know how many people in the county even knew about it, but you feel like everybody knows about it, uh, that, that somebody would accuse your, your school of that and the place, your ministry of that. Um, it's, it's a burden to, to be under. Um, and you do wonder, is this going to affect our ministry, right? I mean, this is what we do. We minister to people, of course, of every race. And you don't want uh, that then hindering people from coming and, and being taught at, at your school, you know, at, at, at being part of your ministry. Or if a church was accused of that falsely, you, you might feel that, hey, we need to clarify this because it's going to keep people from, if they think that that's who you are, you're a bunch of haters, uh, then who's going to come? And so B Paul was not accused of that here in this case, but he is falsely accused. And there's a, there's a burden under it. And you can see when he gets there, when he finally gets to Rome and then gets to speak to these people, he immediately launches out to tell them that he gathers the, the, the Jews who are in Rome to him and immediately expresses how this was not true. It's interesting that he does that, but he gathers them around and says, men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or our customs, yet I was delivered here. You know, he, he starts to explain this. And then they say to him, well, we didn't know any of this. We didn't, you know, Paul's actually revealing to them that, that you know, what, what went down here. I mean, they know his, they know his name. He, he, he has also written a letter to the church here, so Paul's name is around. Perhaps they know him as Saul of Tarsus more than anything else, the, the zealot who was leading the persecution of this sect. So I'm sure his story has gotten out there, but they don't know anything of the false accusations. But it's interesting, Paul feels the need very quickly to go ahead and speak to it. And, and deal with it. But what we see in this text is that these accusations that were made even back in Jerusalem have not hindered the proclamation of the gospel. In God's providence, he did not allow them to reach all the way out to Rome. So when Paul gets there, this is not a barrier for him. But this is not to say that in life, that's how God does it. That's how God keeps from false accusations from hindering uh, uh, from not hindering the gospel is just he doesn't let it get out. Many times it does get out. In this case, for Paul, it didn't reach there. But as he's writing to the Philippians in other places, he says it did get there. Right When he writes to the Philippians, he says, look, I'm in chain and, and people are, are, are speaking about me and they're mocking, they're mocking me. They're, they're, they're accusing me of things. And in that way, he says they're actually preaching the gospel in vain. They are, they're mocking the gospel, but in so doing, Paul says, they're actually, in some bizarre, twisted way, preaching it. That is, as they go around talking about me and what I do, though they're saying these things about me, they are actually telling people about Jesus Christ, and the Lord is using even this insanity, even these crazy accusations, even these mockings, the Lord is using this for the proclamation of the gospel. So therefore, I frankly don't care how they declare the name of Jesus, whether it is actually accusing me of things or mocking me, or whether they actually go ahead and preach what I preach if the name of Jesus is mentioned, great. 
Again, I'm enchained, in this case by false accusation, but the gospel is not. These things actually will lead to, they will be used by the Lord for the victory of the gospel. It is actually these false accusations that have been used by God to get Paul to Rome. The reason he's in Rome is because he was falsely accused and had to appeal to Caesar. And this is the amazing providence of God. Things which look like barriers and to us are in fact barriers actually are used by God as stairs, you know, as steps, as, as propellants. They, they move us forward somehow. I mean, think, think back even, not though it was not uh, having to do with accusation. Although Stephen was accused, he was falsely accused of, of being a blasphemer. Think about that. You're being stoned to death, and as you're being stoned to death, you're, you are, you're being called a blasphemer. Uh, that's tough to die with that kind of accusation in your ear and wondering, I don't get another chance to defend myself. Like, that's, what, that's the last thing people are going to hear about me here. Is that I'm a black? I just put myself in those shoes. That's a, you know, you're you're. It's a public execution, and they're throwing the the, the stones at you and, and calling you a blasphemer. That's why it's so important that he sees Jesus standing to welcome him and to defend him. Uh, I think to one thing to relieve his own the the own anxiety about these false accusations. But but the the accusations and not only that but the 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 this hindrance of threats that now come. Uh, to the gospel, and yet the Lord uses that to then drive the people out of Jerusalem so that the gospel goes flying out to the uttermost parts of the world. Indeed, the gospel is unhindered. The proclamation and the word of God. Paul may be chained, but the word of God is not. So it's unhindered by false accusation. Secondly, it's unhindered by the related these bizarre and amazing circumstances that we've tracked Paul through, right? Again, Paul had each of these things, these events that we've looked at over the past couple weeks from, again, the false accusations of the Jews to mobs rioting to assassination attempts to, you know, these guys looking for bribes and willing to let him go if he just greased their palms to, to getting on ships going in this direction and that direction and sailing at the wrong time of year and not heeding his warnings and, and massive storms that last for 10 days so they can't see land and, and shipwrecks off, off of Malta and snake bites and, I mean, just one thing after another after another, which you would think, if you were in the moment, not reading it from the 40,000-foot view that we're doing, here we are standing on the outside reading, kind of knowing the end of the story. But if you were in the middle of it, each one of those circumstances would seem like unbelievable barriers to the gospel. And you might even legitimately ask God, what are you doing? Like why, if you've commissioned me to go forth and proclaim the gospel, why all of these twists and turns? Why not the straight path to just get where I need to go so that I can proclaim the gospel? And yet somehow, the Lord has his purposes. The Lord is actually using these circumstances to accomplish his purposes in ways that Paul could never know. Paul has his mind on Rome, and yet the Lord has a million other things going on between Jerusalem and Rome. 
that he's doing in the lives of these people, in the life of Publius on Malta and his father and the three-month stay that he had in Malta where he got to proclaim the gospel because of a shipwreck, because of the stupid decision of these guys to sail when Paul told them, don't sail, lands him on Malta where he gets to share the gospel with Publius. And the Lord had his sights set on Publius. Right? The Lord had his sights set on, on the Malta people. And Paul gets to go there and share the gospel. And what looks like a barrier, what looks like a hindrance to just getting where I need to go, what we learn from Acts is it's no hindrance at all. It's God accomplishing the purposes which are well beyond anything you can imagine. That's why, again, I always say you can't do the math that God is doing. Right? You, you can't solve this problem. The Lord, the Lord is doing things so far beyond anything you can ever dream or imagine. And so what does it call us to do? It, well, it calls us to do what Paul did. Be confident, as we said last week, you'll make it to Rome. I don't know where your Rome is, but what I do know is you'll make it there, as we said last week. You're bulletproof until you get there. Even a snake biting you in the hand, the venomous snake, which should make you die, will not kill you until you get to Rome. And if it kills you, then guess what? You're in Rome. All right, you, you've, made, you've made it to where the Lord wanted you to go. But you're going to make it there. And there is no circumstance that can be a hindrance to you. None. It's an amazing thing. In fact, the Lord is doing something in and through you in each of these stops along the way. What are hindrances or appear to be hindrances, we find out in the book of Acts, are actually the way in which God is working out the proclamation of the gospel and the victory of the kingdom of God. So the gospel, the word of God, cannot be hindered by our circumstances, no matter how severe or threatening they are, even imprisonment, as we'll finally see. Thirdly, the gospel cannot be hindered by spiritual blindness. Think about this. Paul gets to Rome. You finally get there. And you get there and you get a group of hard-hearted people who refuse to believe. right? And that's why he goes on and why he quotes Isaiah 6. Now, some do believe. Praise God. But Paul, I think, by this time has gotten the pattern. I, I show up in a city. I speak to the, my Jewish brethren, whom I love, who I deeply want to persuade. Notice for Paul, it's not just going through the motions. It's not like, okay, fine, I have to say this first to the Jews, but then I really want to get out to the Gentiles because, after all, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. No, in verse 23, and many came to his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, attempting to persuade them or persuading them concerning Jesus both from the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. I mean, here's a man who is not just going through the motions of saying this to the Jews, knowing they'll reject it so he can get on to the Gentiles. This is a man who's pouring himself out day and night with solemnity, right? With all seriousness, begging them and trying to persuade them to believe these things, going through the word of God. Again, God bless Julius who got to listen to all this because, again, it's very much like the end of Luke's gospel when Jesus takes them through, takes, uh, um, um, help me, the, the, uh, the, the Cleopas, Cleopas, takes Cleopas and his friend through Moses and all the prophets teaching them how these things had to happen. And now at the end of Luke's second book, 
We don't have Jesus doing it, but we have the Holy Spirit doing it through the Apostle Paul, taking these Jewish men through Moses and all the prophets, showing them how Jesus Christ is in fact the Messiah. And he's urging them and he's begging them to believe, but many will not. So when they had did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. And here he quotes Isaiah 6. Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should hear, hear, uh, heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. Paul is not even derailed, hindered by the hardness of heart of his audience. He's broken by it. He deeply loves these people. He says that in the book of Romans. He wants them to believe he would give his own life, he says. I would give my own life. If somehow I could trade it so that my kinfolk would come and believe the gospel. So this matters to Paul. This is not like a cold thing. Okay, I had to tell you this. Now let me give you the word of the prophet. You guys are dull. This is God's judgment against you. Now I'm moving on. He is broken by it. But he's not, he's not discouraged from continuing to pro proclaim the gospel. In fact, Paul says, because of this, it's going to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will, in fact, hear it. When we talked about Jew and Gentile, the issue in the book of, in the, in the book of Acts, remember one of the, the models we used to, to set the paradigm for this was the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22. And remember, in that parable, it is actually the hardness of the heart of the invited guests. The fact that they don't want to come, they kill the, pro, the, the messengers, right? They kill them when, the invited, when they come with their, hey, now it's time to come to the party. And they say, we don't want to go. And the prophet's like, what do you mean you don't want to go? That's the, you, you've received the invitation. Come on. They actually take the messengers and they kill them. I mean, this is the message of what's happening with the prophets and also the apostles. That's why Paul is here in prison. Why he's jailed because he's come to the invited guests with the invitation and said, hey, today's the day of the wedding banquet. Come on. And they say, shut your mouth. We don't want to hear about this. We don't want to go to the party. And they arrest him. But then in Matthew 22, when they do that and they come, these beleaguered messengers come back to the king and they're bloody and they're bruised and they're beaten up and they're limping and their clothes are torn and they come dragging themselves back to the king and the king is saying, what in the world happened to you guys? And they say, look, we tried to, we tried to tell the invited guests to come and, and, and they beat us up. They said, we're not coming to your stinking party. He says, all right, all right. Well, then go then. Go to the highways and the byways and invite whoever will come. That in Matthew 22, he actually links the rejection of the invited guest, by the invited guests to the dispersion of the invitation to the world. And though it breaks Paul's heart, again, he loves them, he knows that it will be by this very rejection that the gospel will go out to the world. And notice the confidence that he has. And they will hear it. The gospel is not hindered. And the gospel proclamation is not hindered by your blindness and by your rejection of it. 
In fact, through this, it will go out to the world and the world will hear it. This was the offensive words that got him into trouble all throughout his missionary journeys and especially right there in Jerusalem. Remember, he had the crowd real quiet. They were all listening intently to him. And then he said, this message is going to the Gentiles and God is receiving the Gentiles. In. And when he said that, kaboom, the whole, the whole meeting blew up. And that's when they, the Romans were jumping in there to rescue him and get him back out of there. It was statements like that that kept getting him in trouble. But Paul knew that this is where it goes. This is the whole point of the whole thing. Was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Paul, though he might have reason to be discouraged by the spiritual blindness and deafness of his own people as he's proclaiming it, nonetheless speaks with utter confidence. The gospel's going into the highways and the byways, guys, and they will hear it. And praise God, because that's us. That's us. Here we are. These Gentiles, these silly Gentiles who have indeed believed it. The gospel is unhindered by false accusation. It's unhindered by all of our wild circumstances in our lives, and there are many. It's unhindered by the spiritual blindness and rejection of those to whom we speak. You will preach the gospel to people, and it will be like you're preaching to a brick wall. That's all right. That's all right. The, the gospel will do its work I was just telling my students the other day, when we sit down and read God's Word, we were, we were sitting around a table reading Acts, of all things, Acts uh, 1 through 4, because we're in church history. So we're, we're starting going to go quickly through it, but nonetheless, looking at it, we sat down to have a discussion on Acts 1 through 4. And as we did, I reminded them, as the Word of God is read, give attention to it. Because the Word of God is living Word, and it's a double-edged sword. It never, ever, ever returns void. It always does its work, either hardening or softening, but the word of God is living and powerful and it does not return having failed. So speak, like Paul, speak. And who knows whose heart the Lord changes? Persuade, work it through. But sometimes you'll feel like you're preaching to a brick wall and there is nothing going on there. That's okay. Know that the gospel will accomplish its purposes. Continue to speak. You have no idea what the seeds that you're throwing out as the parable of the sower, when in fact they will land on fertile soil. So continue to preach. The gospel is unhindered by spiritual blindness or by rejection from its hearers. And then finally, the gospel is unhindered from the powers that be. That's how... That's what it really means in the very end. Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. No one forbidding him. Completely unhindered. May we have that kind of boldness and confidence, particularly in an age that is growing less forbearing, more apparently forbidding, <laughs> right? More hindering. Paul speaks while he's chained to a Roman centurion. Not knowing his future. But I love that. Speaking with all confidence. No one forbidding him. Paul is dealing with the powers that be, Jew and Gentile. He's dealing with the powers of the temple in Jerusalem. He's dealing now with the highest Roman authorities, even Caesar himself. But Paul speaks with all confidence, knowing what he preaches cannot be stopped. 
he tells Timothy, though I am in chains, the word of God is not chained. It can't be stopped. Even in his death, I mean, this is the, this is the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's even in his execution that it's like, it's like stepping, on a, stepping on a fire to put it out, but with dry tinder all around you. And just the, just the weight of your foot coming down to put out the fire spreads the fire. You step on it, and, and the fire goes out both sides of your feet and touches the tinder and lights it on fire. I mean, this is what happens in the death of Christ. It's actually by executing him and silencing him that you put him on, you know, give him a megaphone. It's, it's, you know, again, I go back to that Romanian pastor there, Joseph Zahn. He says, sir, your greatest weapon is killing me, but my greatest weapon is dying. So do what you got to do. Do what you got to do. My greatest weapon is dying. I'm preaching. And if you would like to silence me, go ahead. Then everyone will know about me, and I will thank you. But then everybody will know throughout all Romania. The gospel will go forth. You can't stop this train. Do what you want. Try to silence me. You can't do it. The gospel itself is unchained. And that is, that is the confidence I love the fact that the book of Acts ends with such a strong statement that Paul was preaching with confidence, unhindered. You know, we look at our challenges that surround us, and there are many. We've, we've reported on them. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk about all some more in Sunday school. It seems like there's all kinds of hindrances. But the amazing thing about Paul is just like wherever he was, it was opportunity. They were never hindered. It was just another opportunity. We're on the ship with these guys. It's opportunity. I'm on Malta. It's opportunity. I'm in Rome. It's opportunity. I'm talking to Felix. It's opportunity. I'm in the garrison with these guys. It's opportunity. Just everything's opportunity. There's no hindrance. It's just different opportunity. But Paul viewed it that way because he knew that the victory was the Lord's, as we said in, in 2 Timothy 2 today. Right? right when he says the gospel's unchained. Hey, be the hardworking farmer, be the faithful soldier, be the competitive athlete, but do it remembering Jesus rose from the dead. It's already done. The victory is already accomplished, right? The he is the first fruits of that great harvest. The victory's here. So we're not living hoping to accomplish some victory, like we're living in light of the victory. The wind is at our backs. And so go, go with confidence. Now this wraps up our look at Acts. But Paul actually says to, the, to the, these Roman Jews or Roman, uh, some, some believers, I assume, um, that Paul, and he, we've heard him say this uh, a couple times, Paul says that he is basically here and he's basically on trial. This is verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. I'm actually bound here. I want you to know this, guys, as you get to know me here. In, in, uh, you've heard about me, but I, you, know, you need to know that I'm here not for anything. I, I haven't committed any crimes. I'm here ultimately because I proclaim that Israel's long-expected hope has actually come to be. That's the message. And that, uh, no doubt, is the sermon that he had been preaching these six-hour sermons 
okay? These six-hour lessons that he's doing has been that it's the hope of Israel that I proclaim to you today. And I mention this because this is going to transition us to our next series. We're not going to jump into a book. Uh, We've spent time in Acts here. But what we're going to do is take up that theme of the long-expected hope of Israel, especially as we move toward Advent. I don't want you to think Christmas is right around the corner. It is not. It is not. But nonetheless, we're going to pick up that theme and, and also the theme that we started in Sunday school and then abandoned because we spent our Sunday school times doing this Q&A, and that is Christ in the Old Testament. So we're going to go back now and pick up this hope of Israel that the Apostle Paul says he's proclaiming. We're going to go back to the law and the prophets and just kind of jog our way through the Old Testament, looking at these pictures, these wonderful anticipations of the coming Christ. And that will move us toward Advent. But we'll even go a little bit beyond that. So just so you know, that's what we'll be doing next week. Next week we'll be in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start from the very beginning. We're not, we're not going verse by verse through the Old Testament. But we are going to start in the beginning and look at how from the very beginning the hope of Israel, the hope of creation was the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything in the Old Testament was driving forward and pointing forward in great anticipation to his arrival. So that when Paul goes about preaching Christ has come as the fulfillment of all these things, he sees it. We're going to see, we're going to try to see what Paul saw, but which many in Israel were blinded to and just could not see it. They were so locked into the shadows that they couldn't see the reality when it came. So Paul was on trial for the hope of Israel. We're going to go back and consider the Old Testament uh, hope of Israel. That's what we'll do over the next several months. So that's Acts. Glory be to God. May we have confidence and know that what we proclaim and what we're called to do cannot be hindered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us such a calling, such a commission. That, Father, you have given us a task that can't fail. You send us out with a gospel that cannot be chained, it cannot be silenced, it cannot be muted, it cannot be held back. So we thank you for how the gospel has gone all around the globe. And Father, we thank you that it's reached us. And we pray that through us it might reach many more. Father, we pray indeed that you would unchain the gospel in our lives, that we might not be silent but that we might join the movement of the gospel. We might join in the service of the King of Kings, that we might join in the work of the apostle as he went forth and saw every hindrance as a new opportunity. So may it be in our lives. Keep us faithful to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.